You are on trend with the Alumni Trending Podcast. What's up, trendsetters? Welcome to the Alumni Trending Podcast, a podcast for advancement professionals by advancement professionals. On trending, you can expect to hear the voices leading our profession, advancing our institutions, and keeping higher education strong all around the world. I am, as always, your host, Paul Clifford, and joining me today is Kim Nioni. Kim serves as the Associate Vice President for Development with the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He is a seasoned fundraising executive with over 15 years of experience in higher ed. Kim has been with UNLV since 2017, where he oversees fundraising teams that work to secure philanthropic gifts in support of UNLV's strategic priorities in academics and athletics. Kim's career includes stops at the University of California at Berkeley, Washington University in St. Louis, Utah State, the University of Arizona, and most recently at Mizzou. He is a graduate of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and actually a two-time graduate of the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. I am pleased to welcome Advancement Thought Leader Kim Nioni to the podcast. Welcome, Kim. Thank you so much, Paul. It's an honor and a privilege to be with you here today to uh, have this conversation. I'm looking forward to our conversation and to getting to know you a little bit better and uh, to hearing about all the great work that you're doing to advance our profession. So let's start right there and start with the the why behind you have dedicated your career and your life to higher education and particularly higher education advancement. Thank you for that. So I'll be lying if I was telling you here that, you know, back in the days when I was in Nebraska, I thought when I graduate, I'm going to be an advancement professional. <laughs> you know, at that time, this was not a field that I was even familiar with. Uh, my journey started at the University of Nebraska Athletic Department, where I was uh, actually working in athletic marketing. And early on in my days there, uh, one of our senior women administrator, uh, Dr. Barbara Hibner, late Dr. Barbara Hibner, who happens to be from Pennsylvania, Bob, she took me under a wing. You know, she wanted to mentor me as a senior woman administrator for many years. She was responsible for building Nebraska's women athletic programs back when there was not a lot of support for female programs. So she would talk to me about how she had to raise money and work on capital projects and things like that. She said, you know, Kim, you ought to think about that. I think you'd be really good at it. And so I really developed that, that passion for it from what I saw her uh, model, the behavior of being uh, a servant leader, service above self, uh, how she took joy in seeing all those students that graduated because of the scholarships she was able to secure and support their programs. And so I started accidentally, thanks to the late Dr. Barbara Hibner's inspiration, I started down this path. And at some point, five years into my career, after I'd gone to Berkeley and uh, been doing some great work there, I had that temptation. I thought, well, maybe I could just go into the private sector and maybe I can do other things because, yeah, you know, five years is enough. But I started thinking about all these lives that I've been fortunate enough to to begin to to uh, to shape, uh, to begin to help through the scholarships that I raise, uh, through the uh, projects that I collaborate with my colleagues on to raise transformational gifts for capital projects, 
through the general alumni engagement initiatives that we launched. And I thought about that. I said, you know, I, I feel this is my mission and passion and I want to continue. And so five years in, I said, you know what? I'm going to buckle down because I can't see myself doing anything else with my life. And uh, I've been fortunate enough to have been uh, given opportunities to expand my, uh, my, my professional uh, portfolio, work with uh, large institutions, within large institutions to really be at the forefront of raising uh, major gifts, principal gifts, and work in every aspect of this field. Uh, the work has taken me around the country to uh, m- most major metropolitan areas, working with people who have become lifelong friends. And so as I recall last year, I was uh, I attended the Harvard Graduate School of Education's uh, Institute of Education Management Program. And the nexus of that program was the talk and the conversation around what's your mission and purpose. And I recall sitting down with colleagues and I just started unpacking a few things that I've gained over the years. I said, you know, uh, why am I here? What is my purpose? And to me, I came up with a very short uh, purpose statement of why I see myself doing what I'm doing. And that was what I call to unshackle greatness. What do I mean by that? Well, in every individual that I work with on my team and in every individual that I've dealt with, I believe we all have unique greatness and strengths to impact lives. And that strength oftentimes uh, you know, is uh, uh, marred in uh, bureaucracy, uh, bureaucratic procedures, and other uh, items other obstacles that prohibits individuals from living their true purpose and passion. And so my goal has been to help unshackle those, help remove those obstacles, help people realize their potential, help my team be the best it can be, help my institution be the best that it can be, which is why I find myself oftentimes getting involved in a lot of issues within the institution, whether I'm serving on the campus planning committee or I'm working on a strategic uh, visioning committee of some kind because I see my role as an advancement professional to advance that institution and the people that I'm honored to serve. And so I, I, I have stayed and remained in the field because it's my passion, it's my life. I can't see myself doing anything else that will give me as much joy as watching the graduates that I helped uh, uh, facilitate uh, private funding to, to, and watching them currently rise as vice presidents, as senior managers in industry and making a difference and changing the trajectory of their family and for, the, for now and for the future. So I, I'm, I'm in it for the long haul because of those reasons. So I want to I want to dive into your career a little bit. You've been a number of different places and you've had some significant accomplishments all along the way. I'm going to ask this question of you twice. First, I want you to take a look at uh, the places you've been and the things that you're most proud of accomplishing from a job description standpoint, right? So from what you were able to do on behalf of that institution, some of your accomplishments have been outstanding. What are the some what are those projects that really stand out to you? So I go back to uh my time at uh when I was at the University of Arizona, a couple of memorable things. Uh 
one of, one of them is uh, I was working on a project for our advanced engineering research building. Uh, it's going to be a R&D hub on uh, a number of, uh, uh, you know, emerging technologies, you know, nanotechnology, biomed, uh, uh, unmanned air vehicles, so on and so forth. And, you know, when we were, uh, one of the things I really enjoyed about that project is we as development team uh, got involved from the planning phase, conceptualization, all the way to here are all the architectural renderings and let's develop a strategy on who we want to talk to to raise money. I think oftentimes uh, we get brought in at, on the tail end when we've already, this uh, project has already been conceptualized and uh, it's already, uh, uh, you know, almost shovel ready. Uh, and that's when somebody comes and says, well, uh, we need uh, some, some development work to raise X money. And so I really enjoyed being part of that and working with our dean and faculty as we're conceptualizing this and bringing in volunteers to sell them that vision. And out of that uh, came a uh, million dollar contribution from someone who I had been working with for three years. It took me three years of working at their pace, engaging them, getting them to buy into the vision that we had, answering some of the challenges that they had with uh, the vision that we, we were pursuing for that project. And in the end, being able to convince them that this was a worthwhile investment of their dollar. And this was somebody who had never given more than $25,000, you know? And then uh, the second part of that was uh, when I was uh, working on a similar project, I had 20 minutes to be with the CEO of a, a, a public uh, utility company in the, in the Southeast and exactly 20 minutes. And this is a person we had not met with in decades. And from that 20 minute conversation, uh, we were we were able to set up a follow up meeting and really start to understand what his long term vision was, what his perspective and interaction with the university was, and how we may get him to be involved, whether it's philanthropically through monetary terms or it's just through volunteering of time, and that was a process that. I started, I developed that relationship with that individual. We, my dean and I would go and engage them. I left the institution in 2014. And last year, uh, actually, sorry, two years ago, we received a gift of a million dollars that went to the U of A with about three more in the pipeline. And so I look back at that and it's, I, I, I give you that particular example because oftentimes we get all the accolades, right? I am the lead development person on this project. So yes, you did it. It was you. You were great. But as you know, this is a team sport. I, te- I teed off the ball. I, you know, I, I drove the cart and uh, I, I made my drives all the way down and I left the institution. Somebody else came and picked up where I left off because I wanted to make sure that they're going to be successful. So we ensured that we passed off the relationship the right way. And it took two other people before we finally realized that gift years after I'd left the institution. And so I oftentimes I'll tell people, I say, look, if you have the mindset that I'm here for the institution and I want to do the right thing, whether this gift is going to take 10 years or five, it's not about 
me because I'm paying it forward. And it's important that we initiate those relationships in meaningful ways that will not jeopardize the institution's ability to, uh, you know, to have a good relationship with that particular uh, benefactor. Absolutely. And uh, those, those, those are the two things that, you know, uh, I, I, I think of, and also I go back to uh, most recently here with uh, uh, my, my current uh, position uh, in terms of uh, your earlier question. I mean, being able to come in, being able to uh, recruit uh, some talented folks to join our team, being able to work on building the infrastructure for fundraising from moves management uh, to, you know, general operational items, developing new policies for the program, and really just, uh, I, I credit my former uh, uh, Vice President Scott Roberts for, for really uh, allowing us the creativity to be able to come in and take the, the operation from one level to another by intentionally in, engaging in uh, operational changes and uh, in initiatives that would make us better in the future. Well, I think you answered both parts of my question right, right there because I was going to ask uh, in your opening answer, it seems like you were very people focused, very team focused. And uh, I, I don't know, by the end of your answer, I was ready to to, to run through the wall and come and work for you. <laughs> that has to be felt by members of your team. So I wanted you to maybe expand a little bit about what you have done uh, that you're most proud of in your career in terms of helping others in their career? Yeah. You know, I got to tell you, I'm one of those uh, individuals who maybe at some point they'll say, well, you can't be all about people that way. You know, this is about bottom line. And I always say, you know, good people and culture, Trump strategy all day, any day. You give me great people that are coachable, that are uh, authentic, that bring the authentic self to work and are mission driven. We can get it done. Uh, when I look at, you know, when people start thinking about legacies, you know, what do you want to be remembered by? And oftentimes I said, I want to be remembered as somebody who cared, as somebody who truly cared about the welfare of their team members and the institution they served. In terms of people, I recall I had a development officer years ago, and my supervisor at the time was not big into coaching people. They expected you to come in and you already have to be good. Otherwise, you don't belong there. And so when I joined the organization, I was asked to you know, consider uh, eliminating uh, that position in that individual. And I said, well, how could you say that when you haven't even spent time to mentor them? I mean, you hired them knowing that they had limited to no development experience. However, they were very coachable. You know, you can't teach ethics. You can't teach moral compass. You know, you can't teach how somebody engages uh, uh, with, with folks. You can teach them development strategy and things like that, but they have to come from a, from a foundational uh, perspective of exhibiting strong ethical and core values because of uh, institutions that we represent. And so I said, well, uh, I don't want to do that. What I would like to do is to ask you to give me time to work with them. And I worked with this individual I mentored them, showed them how to get get it done, and empowered them to make their own decisions. Like, you know, what what do you think? Let's walk me through the strategy on how you're engaging this individual. What would you do here? 
okay, you do this, okay, yeah, make it happen. And so I empowered them to own uh, their own success. And I said, uh, if you do something that you feel is uh, inappropriate or maybe you made a mistake, it's okay to make a mistake uh, because you that's the learning opportunity. And so I had that person going from being an average uh, performer within a year, they were the top entry-level development officer on our campus. Uh, within year two, the uh, dean was looking to add a director of development, and they came and talked to me and said, hey, Kim, so the dean is uh, looking for a, de- for a director. I think I can do the job, but I'm not sure I should apply because I don't have as, uh, as lengthy a career in the field. I said, you know, that doesn't make sense. I know what you can do. I've seen what you can do. And you're probably going to be better than most people in that pool. So I say you apply. And they applied. She got the job and did an outstanding job and then ended up moving away from the institution to uh, Chicago. And today she is a senior director and principal gifts doing exceptionally well. And every time I think of why I do what I do. I think of her and I, I, I'm, I'm very grateful that she gave me an opportunity to be her manager because I look at where she got today and it's all her. It's all her work. I just, I'm just a person who was removing certain obstacles and the person who believed in her because I knew that she had it in her. And to me, that's, that's the level of the investment that I put in, in my team members who are willing to be coached. Because not everybody is willing to to be uh, vulnerable and be authentic about what they need and how you can help them, and so um, that's been with every uh, you know professional that I've brought through. I like to 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 work with them from where they are, but my commitment is always to them as individuals and their success. Where are you trying to go? How can we help you? We can if we cannot help you here then let's make sure you get enough uh, enough out of this institution so that you can go and help somebody else. Because at the end of the day, I think we are paying forward to our field. So if I have somebody who's really good and you at Penn State have a great opportunity for them to uh, advance, absolutely go for it. I support them and I say, you know what, you're going to a great place. You're going to work with great people because that's how we build a strong talent pipeline for our field as a whole. Kim, what I'm struck by in both of your answers is the nuanced distinction between the types of relationships that we develop in the work that we do. And in your first answer, you talked about how you were able to develop institutional relationships between the donors and the institution and some of which didn't pay off until after you left the institution. But because you have developed an institutional relationship, there was the opportunity for that relationship to pay off for the institution because you didn't take it with you when you left the institution. And then the difference between the personal relationship and a professional relationship uh, was, I think, what you just described in your uh, second example is that you know, your professional relationship with that colleague really allowed them to develop as a professional, to advance their career in a professional way. I'm struck by if those were personal relationships that you might have been effective, but wouldn't have been as effective as developing 
the nuanced institutional and the nuanced professional relationships that you were able to develop in both of those situations? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, we, we live in a very nuanced uh, world. And I think for me, whether it's the donor or the institution, an individual, I think it's absolutely critical to be authentic in the way you connect with people. I'm sure you've run into, you know, your usual uh, salesman uh, who will come in with big flash and they try to get you to think that they uh, really uh, believe in what, what you're talking about or in the product that they're pushing. And as soon as they make that sale, uh, you're done. To me, when it comes to relationship, whether it's a donor or whatever, I'm always very authentic about why I'm there, what my intention is, and I always make sure they understood that I'm here for the university while my relationship was with when I was at the previous institution. And so with my team, it's always been, I want to understand what are you passionate about? What is your long-term goal? How can I help you? Because if we are not doing that for our individuals and really getting to know them, you know, we're not, we're not going to be very successful. And I, and I argue that's one of the biggest uh, reasons why we have a lot of turnover in our industry, because oftentimes you go and meet these people that are just there for the paycheck. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're here. We raised a billion dollars this year, a billion dollars next year. Then my resume will be good, so I'll call University X and uh, go become a VP over there because of the success of that here. It's not about raising a billion dollars. It's about transforming lives. It's about transforming our communities. If we focus on that, then we can get the biggest dollars that we want to get at any time. That will happen. But we just need to, if we focus on the, on the purpose while we're here. I mean, I work at a university that serves primarily first-generation students. These are kids that are the first in their family to ever set foot in a college campus. So you think about it. If, you're, if your goal in existence is to help those kids become successful, graduate, go work in industry, you are transforming lives. And that's why higher education is there. You know, you used a great word that I'm going to use to transition to our next topic, and that's uh, stewards of the institution. I think you've also been a great example of uh, a steward of our profession. Uh, you are active and, and you are a leader with uh, Black Leaders in Advancement. And if you could share what that organization's all about. Certainly. So like many of our citizens, uh, both, uh, you know, African-American, non-African-American, watching the video of Mr. Floyd uh, getting murdered and watching the video of a young man who got shot while jogging in Georgia and then watching the video of Central Park where that lady called a the police officer on the African-American gentleman who was filming her had a very profound impact on me. I felt as if we're getting one punch left, right, front, back. But this time around, it was different. I think maybe it's because of COVID. A lot of us were at home. We were watching these things on TV. And I just found myself, you know, just breaking down. I was like, this can't be right. So reached out to uh, my friends with the African-American Development Officer Organization out in, uh, in Atlanta as a networking group for African-American and minority professionals 
Um, so we had a meeting, impromptu meeting. So, okay, we got to talk. It was a space of uh, 200 of us or so on a call in a very sort of uh, heightened sense of em- different emotions that are going on and having a conversation about how can we, how can we be a solution as members of uh, the philanthropic community in higher education? We felt that unlike any other time, now is the time. People in the country are upset about what they're seeing. And we need to look at, as professionals, what are some of the things that, that we're seeing? We start looking at the number of uh, leaders in philanthropy who are African-American or minorities in large R1 institutions. And it was crazy because we could count, all of us could count the ones, you know, could count them in like one hand. When you go to AAU, number gets better when you go to R1. Uh, there was far and few in between. And then we'll start talking about our, our journey through our careers. How long did it take you to get an opportunity promotional opportunity? And what are some of the challenges that you, that you discovered during the way? And we started talking about mentorship. How many of us were mentored? Uh, hardly any. Uh, very few were mentored and had somebody who really got them going early in the career to ensure that they were positioned to be in a leading role if that was, that's what, what they wanted. So as we were engaging in that conversation, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Angelique Grant with the Aspen Leadership Group and I, sort of had a sidebar. And uh, we said, well, uh, between your Rolodex and between my Rolodex, we know, that we know at least 20 uh, folks around the country at the AVP level, Associate Vice President, Associate Vice Chancellor level, or higher. We, why don't we convene this group together as uh, you know, Black professionals in philanthropy and develop a, a pledge of what we're willing to do to help address issues of systemic uh, racism that have prevented uh, candidates from underrepresented groups to be able to be in a position where they can be groomed to lead an organization. We started looking at, you know, so we uh, reached out to our our personal network and uh, we had a number of meetings and discussed some ideas. And uh, one of the things that we, we, we came up with that we are, we're working on is obviously to partner with case and uh, AFP to develop this pledge on um, uh, on diversity and inclusiveness in philanthropy. We wanted to ensure that, to commit to mentoring students to pursue careers in advancement. We wanted to do something similar to the internship program you have at Penn State, but this one be intentional about ensuring that underrepresented students make a good chunk of the people that get admitted to the internship programs so that we start from that perspective. And then we wanted to have a way of evaluating institutions on whether or not they're truly living diversity and inclusiveness principles by how they, their recruiting of underrepresented uh, professionals, their retention of underrepresented professionals, and the consideration they give to underrepresented professionals when it comes to leadership positions. And also looking at everything from going down to your search committees. 
What kind of questions are we asking? How are we sourcing talent? Oftentimes, we go through avenues that are appealing or where mostly people who are non-minorities go to find positions. We don't go so much, we don't advertise in, uh, in, uh, or work with community organization or whatever to source other talent, to put the positions in, in publications, in avenues where we're likely to attract candidates of color. And so we, uh, we, we came up with that, with, that, uh, with that pledge collectively and uh, we released it uh, and are working on further engaging with our national organizations to con- and our own universities, by the way. So this was not just we telling you what to do. This was, okay, we are one. The reason why we picked to focus primarily on African-American uh, you know, and, and Blacks in, in general is because we felt that oftentimes when we talk about issues of diversity and inclusiveness and we talk about underrepresented uh, students in general uh, uh, or underrepresented professionals, I should say, oftentimes the African-American candidates uh, are, are left out. Uh, there are unique challenges that historically have faced African-American professionals in higher education. And so we wanted to focus primarily on that particular population initially with a goal to go broader and address the, the, the broader systemic underrepresentation of professionals of color. And so we want, we, we, our goal was not to condemn people. Our goal was to find leaders like yourself who are passionate about this, this topic and want to do something and say, okay, Paul, here are some of the nuggets that we have in mind. What do you think? Here's how we can work with you. We got to work collectively because unless this is seen as a problem for our institutions, as a problem for our field in general, then it's just going to be uh, it's just it's just going to be ignored as always. It's got to be a, it's got to be a broader societal issue. I mean, you can't have you can't have an institution that is seventy percent uh, um, uh, minority that doesn't have a single person of color. In, on their leadership team, and think that that's okay. That's just that. that that's just uh, uh, you know. And you see institutions that are intentional, uh, like uh, you know, you see uh, Riverside, where you look at their leadership team, you look at all their ranks. I mean, they're intentional about being inclusive. And so we want to take that and work with everybody in our field, so that we can take the lessons from this mo- moment that our country is going through and ensure that our institution is going to be even better moving forward. Absolutely. I'll digress for a second, but the question that you asked around advancement in the profession, how long did it take you to advance in the profession or to get that promotion, was the example that I used when I was talking to my children about white privilege and when I was talking to my children about institutional racism. And I use CAAE as an example, the Council of Alumni Association Executives, which I've been a member of. And I told them, when I go to those meetings, there are only five African-Americans at those meetings out of the, the hundred that are there. There are only two African-American men. I, and my question to my children was, do you think that there aren't more African-Americans that are 
smarter than me, that uh, work harder than I do, that, that would prevent them from being in that room, from achieving those positions. And it wasn't until I put it that way and, and asked the question, why do you think I was able to advance in my career in a way that African-Americans weren't able to do that? And, and my point to them was that because of the way that I appear in the world and because of the privilege that I carry, it was easier for me to navigate this profession than it is for those who are as smart and work as hard and work harder to advance in the profession. And asking them to think about the question, what are the barriers that make that possible? That's what brought it to light for them. As you know, there are different avenues that, you know, as to how somebody finds out about a position. For most executive uh, searches, you have your search firms that screen candidates and so on and so forth. And then in other places, you just you know go th- straight through the university. So it's interesting when we got the Black Leaders in Philanthropy together, we, we are, we're not a, a, a fully formed organization, but we're sort of like a network of professionals who are passionate about helping our uh, organizations uh, truly become open and accessible to, to everybody. When we're, when we're having this conversation, and mind you, we are different generations, from an institution across the country. And you sit there and you start having a conversation and one person says, well, you know, I remember back when I was an assistant director and I really was aspiring for leadership. And I was told, you know, all you got to do is produce the numbers, raise money, do this, and, uh, you know, uh, work well with others. You know, just work on a variety of gifts. And I did all that. And guess what? When it came for an opportunity to be uh, promoted, I went for a position and somebody else got it. And I didn't, need, I didn't even get consideration. I was told I needed more experience. But then they hired somebody with less experience. Then I scratched my head. And then somebody else in the room said, oh, you know what? That happened to me too. That happened to me. There are two things here. Either we as African-American uh, professionals are really incompetent or somebody somewhere has their idea of who they see as the ideal candidate for that role. And then if you apply for a position, say you're going through a search firm, do we know the criteria that a search firm uses? What have we instructed them to do? How are they screening candidates? And one of the things that we find out that was a very common theme across our group is that almost every person on the call had been to multiple institutions. And the reason why was because they are moving out to move up. And you compare that to colleagues that we know who are Caucasian, primarily white male, and what we saw is their trajectory was rather steady in one organization for a lengthy period of time and things like that. So, so how is that? How is that a coincidence? And so if a search firm is looking at a candidate, uh, oftentimes they want to see stability, for instance. But I've often argued that that standard is somewhat unfair to uh, underrepresented professionals because oftentimes these are folks who are not in the clubhouse with the rest of the folks who are in the clubhouse who will think of somebody that looks like them to be in a certain position. So if I'm already on the outside, I have to work extra hard to be able to just to get there. So I have to go to an institution outside of where I am to get to the level of experience and exposure that can 
prepare me to be a leader for an enterprise. And so that was one of the things that conversations that we we were having and saying, you know, this is privilege 101 right here. When you see people bounce from one VP ship to another, and you know about at least 10 people who are professional of color who would not even get a consideration, then you come to a point where you say, well, does higher education need its own Rooney rule like they have in the NFL? Uh, what is it that we need to sort of level the paying field? And by that, I mean, I want to be very clear. No one is saying, give me an opportunity over by overlooking my qualification. What people are saying is, hey, just give me a fair shake. Understand that as an African-American, I may be moving to a small town or what have you. I bring a different perspective. And as institutions of our of higher education, we should be okay with having diverse perspectives. And that actually makes us better organizations. So just create a path for folks to be able to pursue and realize success within our fields at all levels. I'm not saying just being a VP. It could be whether you're executive director or alumni relations. You could be stewardship person, what have you. But let's just be authentic in removing the the obstacles that prevent folks from being successful. I work with a colleague here at Penn State named Charlie Jeffries, who is doing great work in this space. And in our conversations, I talk about um, being an ally to the Black community. And I love the way she puts it. She's like, we don't need allies. We don't need people on the sidelines cheering us on. We need co-conspirators. We need people who are in positions of power, people who have privilege and acknowledge the privilege that they have to use that privilege to make a change and make a difference. And so let me pose that question to you in the community of practice that you're working with here, Black leaders in philanthropy, Black leaders in advancement. What can co-conspirators do to help advance the cause? So a couple of things. I'll start from the granular level. When you are a, a staff uh, a staff member, your colleague, oftentimes you 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 hear uh, language and things being said uh, uh, that are part of what we call the unconscious bias view of things. You can be a co-conspirator by creating an environment where that is not acceptable. That is not acceptable. You call somebody out. You have a conversation. No, it's not okay to say certain things. When you're in those search committees and you hear somebody, uh, as you're structuring them, you have these questions that have to deal with culture. You got to ask yourself, what do we mean by culture? Oh, Paul is not a good cultural fit. Define that. Because oftentimes it has a lot to do with somebody's ethnic background and how they relate to people who are not comfortable dealing with somebody who's different or somebody who's LGBTQ and some people are uncomfortable with that. You can address it there. From a leadership perspective, you have to implement core values within the organization and challenge your entire division leadership to ensure that they're actively recruiting candidates of color, that they're actively building a on a cultural foundation where everyone is respected, where the minoritized candidates or minoritized team members don't feel as if they're isolated. I can tell you from experience, I worked, uh, I worked at an institution where 
I mean, primarily the reason why I left is because I did not feel the support at all. Oftentimes I felt like I was by myself and that I was not welcomed into the family, so to speak, because people did not know how to deal with a black person. They had never been relationships with one. And so oftentimes they would react to certain things that I may do culturally that they're uncomfortable with without realizing that that's part of who I am. I've also worked with uh, universities where I had a vice chancellor who was very serious about diversity and inclusion and very serious about developing a culture of uh, inclusivity. So we would have, uh, when we do our staff retreat, we will talk about differences. We'll talk about why it's important to embrace differences. He modeled that and how he was actively engaging with human resources and with talent management to ensure that, you know, we we're having difficult conversations about race issues that are affecting our campus and how it can make a difference. And he also advocated nationally. I mean, when, you know, as a vice chancellor, he would go to case and say, okay, we got to do something about the fact that we're in a room full of uh, white guys and a couple of white ladies, and there's not a single leader of uh, uh, of color here. What are we doing to groom people? A person who thinks that way, who can look at their uh, at, at, at their talent management and say, okay, as you're recruiting people, I need you to find out who has uh, aspirations for leadership, and I need you to put them in a path to be successful. And I'm gonna I'm gonna hold you accountable in that. As a and uh, you as a manager, I want to see how you're grooming talent, underrepresented talent. And I'm going to hold you accountable based on whether or not we are uh, being successful in uh, grooming those people and in keeping them uh, actively engaged as part of a welcoming community. Uh, as co-conspirators, we can collectively drive policy change that can impact how we, uh, you know, we recruit via, uh, you know, talent management firms or internally building an inclusive culture within an organization and challenging the status quo of the, of the institution to provide adequate funding for internal training programs uh, for all staff involved, especially as you talk about institutions that are located in areas that are not very diverse. I've worked at a number of places where, I mean, the, the population of color was minuscule. And the people there were not bad. They were great people. It's just that what you're not familiar with, you're not familiar with. We're sitting there and these poor people want to be part of the solution, but the institution has not created an environment where we can have those discussions and help them see that, yeah, you may not be a minority, but you're, the most, you're one of the most important uh, parts of providing a solution here, okay? Because you having you know, the, the role that you have and the privilege that you have, you can advance change quicker than I can. That's just fact. You know, those who are in the boardroom move the needle and those who are not in the boardroom, you know, don't move the needle. And so finally I'll say the, you know, as far as that is concerned too, you know, uh, as leaders uh, and uh, co-conspirators, you got to look at things, uh, including your, your boards. Oftentimes our advancement boards are, you know, made up of people who are already, uh, you know, wealthy, well-to-do, Influential folks, and oftentimes at uh, many institutions, that means there are few, there are fewer and fewer people from under, underrepresented groups. 
So if you have these governing boards that are mostly uh, predominantly Caucasian, how are you truly helping the cause here? We have to look at the uh, at, at, at diversity as a critical aspect of our organizations from top to bottom. And to me, that starts with the leadership. Kim, a tradition we have here on the Alumni Trending Podcast is that we give our guests the final word on the profession. So in your mind, what is trending in higher education advancement? Right now, COVID has just uh, thrown a very interesting uh, wrench into things. Uh, What I've seen is all the traditional ways of doing things, such as uh, personal visits, uh, you know, alumni engagement events, stewardship events, all of that has come to a standstill initially as we were reacting to COVID. With the current situation that we're in, uh, what I'm seeing is a lot of conversations around student-focused, student-centered support and also addressing technological infrastructure issues. Most institutions were not prepared to go fully remote. As We've gone mostly fully remote. There's been some hiccups here and there with many institutions of ensuring their students uh, have adequate computing equipment and those kind of things, preparing faculty to be able to offer that distance uh, uh, sort of uh, instruction. And most of us are just now uh, catching up to it. What I've seen even, uh, you know, in, in, in my side of the country has been the shift from we got to, you know, build all these, uh, we got to launch all these capital campaigns, uh, capital enhancement projects, I should say, to wait a minute, do we really need to add another student, uh, 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 student uh, learning complex now? Do we need to uh, add a new wing to the library to, well, we have a, you know, we have an issue upcoming of uh, students, uh, primarily uh, students from low income not being able to afford school. So we got to focus on scholarships. We got to focus on uh, on those kind of things. And big donors are coming back and saying, well, I want to only consider projects that are going to move the institution towards realizing a strategic vision. And uh, the other, the other uh, items that I've, that I've been seeing from, from, from our per- perspective in, uh, is that uh, Institutions are having conversations within leadership teams about why do we exist? Why, what, what's our role moving forward? And what's the new normal going to look for us? So I predict that uh, uh, we're going to see uh, less and less uh, decentralization of fundraising operations where each college is running its own thing to where we're looking at more of a centralized model because for the next couple of years, we're going to have to work with le- with less. So it's a it's a it's a it's a it's an ever evolving landscape. But though, 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 those those things are primarily what I've what I've been seeing more and more of. It's uh, uh, you know as far as people being impacted, our donors being impacted by uh, you know the uh, uh, economic downturn. Yes, they have, but there's still people out there with resources who are willing to give, but they're just not going to give you something just because of affinity, just because, uh, you know, you have a specific need. Uh, They're really looking into how do we use the limited philanthropy that we want to make to truly 
move the needle, to truly help the institution meet its mandate. And not just because we want to build a fancy new building or addition to our campus, because that's what we think was uh, palatable maybe two years ago. So that's what I see. Well, Kim, you've had a great impact on higher education throughout your career. You have been a great mentor to other professionals, and you've been a great steward of our profession. And I want to thank you for coming on the Alumni Trending Podcast and sharing your perspective on higher education advancement. Likewise, Paul, I want to thank you so much for uh, for doing this. Uh, uh, you're, you're one of the uh, the best of the best in our industry because uh, you two are a thoughtful and caring leader. Together, we'll keep fighting the good fight and uh, put our institutions and our team first, and uh, we'll make things possible. Thank you very much. I'm John Fudo, Vice Chancellor for University Advancement at UMass Lowell, and I'm staying on trend by listening to the Alumni Trending Podcast. There you go, Trendsetters, another episode of Alumni Trending. If you are enjoying the Alumni Trending Podcast, make sure you go out to iTunes or your podcast app of choice and give us a rating and drop us a review. We'd also love to hear from you. Drop me an email at paul.clifford at alumnitrending.com. Until next time, thanks for tuning in and keep trending. <laughs>